Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. A year ago this month, my oldest child got braces. I remember when I first heard the cost that, of braces and the sticker shock and how overwhelmed my wife and I were by it. And so when my son uh, had his braces put in, I called him into my room and I pointed out our window down to the driveway. And I said to him, I said, do you see daddy's pickup truck down there? And he says, yes. I said, your braces cost three times the amount of my pickup truck. (laughs) Just to make sure it's clear, I I said, I could have bought three pickup trucks for the cost of your braces. So please take good care of them. And he has, which has been fantastic. This past week, I found out now my second oldest child needs braces. And so he will get the pickup truck talk soon as well. You know, whoever coined the phrase, the best things in life are free, either did not have children or did not consider children one of the best things in life. Because children are extremely expensive to have. They're free to make, but they're expensive to have. Especially if you're going to be a faithful parent to them. It's expensive in a whole lot of ways. It's expensive even to take my family of six out to dinner. I actually have on my phone this this chart that tells me what days of the week kids eat free at different restaurants in the Green Bay area. If you want a copy, just text me and I'll send it to you. But it's very helpful and it allows us to go out to eat. Kids are expensive. They're costly, not only financially, but they're also they're also costly on our schedules. Occasionally, I'll have someone come up to me and say, do you play golf? And I will say, I have four children. And they'll say, no, no, I, I was asking, do you play golf? I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. I have four children. I don't have time to play golf. They're expensive on our pocketbooks, on our schedules. They also cost us a little bit of sanity. Amen? <laughs> Kids are expensive, but they're precious. They are a blessing from the Lord. I would not trade any of my kids for all the money in the world. I legitimately mean that I love my kids. I love having kids. But make no mistake, kids are costly. And if this is true about one of the best things in life, why can't it be true about the very best thing in life? You know, we live in an American church culture that proclaims a costless Christianity. Churches have shrinked back from declaring the whole counsel of God because they want to upset no one and ask nothing of anyone. They avoid teaching the offensive commands of Christ because they want to fill the pews. 
And they do this to accommodate this cultural desire for a costless Christianity. It's often called a seeker-sensitive church. They proclaim a Jesus who loves us, but really asks nothing of us. A Jesus who is our Savior, but is not our Lord. And the only problem with this, of course, is the Bible. Jesus, in Matthew 16, tells his disciples, he says this, If anyone would come after me, that anyone want to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. You will die. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you would open up to John chapter 19, uh, if you do not have a Bible on you, there is a Bible in the seat in front of you. It is page 906 in that red Bible. If you do not own a Bible, that is for you to keep. Please take it. Um, today, we're not looking at the typical Palm Sunday message. I've done the Palm Sunday message uh, probably eight times now. And so we're just continuing with the Gospel of John series that we've been in over the past several months. And today we get to Good Friday. This takes place five days after that Palm Sunday. And if you remember how Good Friday went, basically Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was betrayed by Judas, one of his apostles. They took him before a court. They tried him. Uh, they sent him to Pilate, uh, who also tried him and found Jesus innocent. But due to the peer pressure of the Jews, he went ahead and scourged Jesus and sentenced him to death. Jesus then carried his cross up to Golgotha, where he died on the cross for our sins. And then we get to today's passage. And it is a passage that I think is often skipped over because the cross is a pretty big event. And so is the resurrection. But what happens between the cross and resurrection is so important for us to understand the cost of following Christ. So let's read together John chapter 19, verse 38 through 42. This is God's word. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he, took, so he, ca so he ca came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews." Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Lord, we come today confessing that there are areas of our lives that we do not want to surrender to you. Strongholds that we want to continue in sin, that we don't want to know the cost of following you faithfully because we want to keep it the way it is. 
Lord, I pray that you would help rise those things from our heart to the surface that we might surrender them, that we might crucify them, that we might follow you more faithfully from this day on. We need your help. We pray that you would do this by your Holy Spirit and through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In Luke chapter 14, we read that great crowds are following Jesus. And Jesus turns to the great crowds that are following him. And he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, that is make secondary, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I'm not sure if anyone told Jesus this, but this isn't the way you win friends and influence people. He went on and said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the costs? You know, it makes sense to count the costs when you're going to do something, doesn't it? If you're going to buy a car, you should count the cost to see if it fits within your budget. If you're going to enlist in the military, you should count the cost to see if you have the endurance. If you're going to get married, you should count the cost to see if you have the devotion. Jesus is saying, if you are going to be my follower, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow after me, you must count the cost, which means it costs something. It's not free. And so what is the cost? Maybe you're here today and you're from the outside looking in, wondering what it would cost you to become a Christian, to become a disciple of Jesus, wondering, wondering how to become one, wondering if, if you want to become a disciple of Jesus. Maybe you're the outside looking in, but maybe you are on the inside looking out. And you look at the world around you and you say, why am I denying myself all of these things. The world seems so happy out there. Why am I denying myself all these things to follow Christ? Whether you are on the outside looking in or on the inside looking out, my hope is that from today's passage, we will understand that the cost of following Christ, though it is great, is completely worth it because Christ is the most priceless treasure we could ever obtain. In today's passage, we have on display for us some of the costs of following Christ lived out in the lives of two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And in this passage, they come and they literally, not figuratively, they literally come and claim Christ, claim the body of Christ. And what we'll see is that it comes at great costs to themselves. So first, we see faithful Christianity, following Christ, costs us our comfort. Look at verse 38 with me again. It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Joseph of Arimathea is recorded in all four Gospels. And so as we look at the other Gospels, we get a more, uh, a fuller picture of who this Joseph of Arimathea is. This is really the only time he shows up in the story of Jesus. 
In the Gospel of Mark, we learn that Joseph of Arimathea was actually a respected and prominent member of the council, which means that he was most likely a part of the ruling Jewish council of Jerusalem, which was called the Sanhedrin. And you may remember, but the, the, the members of the Sanhedrin were the ones that sent Jesus to Pilate, hoping that, that Pilate could put Jesus to death. And the members of this Sanhedrin were the ones that were stirring up the crowds, calling for Pilate to release Barabbas and to crucify Jesus. But we are told in the Gospel of Luke that Joseph was different. That Joseph was one of the few that did not consent to the actions of crucifying Christ. And the reason that is listed in the Gospel of Luke is because Joseph of Arimathea was a man who was looking for the kingdom of God. Now when we look at our passage in verse 38, one of the things that's pointed out for us here is that Joseph was a closet Christian. Did you see that? Look, look at verse 38 again. It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly... Why was he secretly a disciple of Jesus? For fear of the Jews. Joseph was not alone in his closet Christianity. Verse 39 continues and it says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. It's such an interesting detail. Like why is John telling us that Nicodemus came by night? I mean, who cares what time of the day Nicodemus came to Jesus? Well, it's important because Nicodemus came by night because he was another one of those closet Christians. He was a secret, secret follower of Jesus looking to understand about the kingdom of God. And so he came under the, 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 the disguise of night to Jesus to ask questions of Jesus. And both of them did this presumably out of fear for the Jews, just like it says of Joseph of Arimathea. You see, they had a lot of reason to fear the Jews. The Jews were the ones who just put Jesus to death, and there was a good reason to believe that they would put his followers to death as well. In fact, that's exactly what they would do not many days later with a man named Stephen who was a follower of Jesus, and what they sought to do with the apostle Paul, but were unsuccessful. And so they had great reason to fear the Jews. And so they were secretive about their discipleship of Jesus. Now here's the thing. For them to publicly be a disciple of Jesus would not have only cost them their safety, but it would have cost them really all of their worldly comforts. Back in John chapter 12, and the verses will be on the screen as well, we read this. It says, Nevertheless, Many even of the authorities believed in him. That is Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, who were the Jewish religious leaders, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And then verse 43, which we'll come back to later, says, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. For Joseph and Nicodemus to publicly profess faith in Jesus Christ was to jeopardize a glory that comes from below, a glory that comes from men. It would jeopardize their admittance into the synagogue. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to us. If you get kicked out of a church, you just go to the church down the street or the church across town or you just quit going to church. But for these people, the, the synagogue was not only a place of worship, which is so important, but it was really the center of all of their life. 
The synagogue is where they fellowship with their friends and with their uh, extended family. The, the synagogue was the place where they carried on uh, uh, networking and relationships for business so they could put food on their table. The, the synagogue, especially for Joseph and Nicodemus, Nicodemus was an important place because that's where they worked. They were on the council. They were paid to be there. This is how they put food on their table. And so if they were excommunicated from the synagogue for being followers of Jesus, this would not only cut them off from the worship of God in the temple, which would be bad enough, but it would cut them off from their family and their friends and their source of income. It would leave them impoverished and isolated and destitute, not only them, but also their family. This cost of putting their life in jeopardy and being kicked out of the synagogue is presumably the reason why the biological brothers of Jesus did not come and claim his body, as was customary. It is probably the reason why the disciples, the apostles, did not come and claim the body of Jesus. But here you have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who come to claim the body of Jesus. And I think the reason why John puts in there that Nicodemus was a secret disciple and that Nicodemus came by night is because John is showing something is transforming in these men's hearts. They are now publicly living out their faith and devotion to Jesus. They could no longer keep a secret their love for Jesus. They must have came to the same conclusion that, that, the, that the Roman soldier did at, at the death of Jesus, that surely this was the Son of God. And so in Mark's gospel, it says that Joseph of Arimathea took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Joseph and Nicodemus, at a great threat to their reputation, their income, their friendships, their comfort, claimed Christ. Make no mistake, claiming Christ still comes at the cost of worldly comfort today, or it can. I have a friend who recently interviewed for a prominent position, and uh, he went through a rigorous interview process, and everything seemed to be going very well, and so they invited my friend to come and to interview in person. The interview lasted days, and they had to meet with several committees, and everything was going very well, and he was very optimistic, and he was very excited about the potential of this job. And then he got to the final committee. And there was a woman on that committee who had done some digging and found out that my friend was a leader in his church, in a Jesus-loving, Bible-believing church. And this angered her. And so she started targeting him with questions to find out if indeed he was a Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christian. And of course, she found out that he was. Now, we can't know for sure, but every indication seems to show that because of his faith in Christ, because he claimed Christ as his Lord and Savior, he was turned down for this job. See, our commitment to Christ must be personal, but it can never be private. We are called to be public Christians. And as we are public Christians, it comes at great cost to our comfort. And so let me ask what synagogues are you afraid of being kicked out of? What areas do you remain a closet Christian so you will not be ostracized? Is it in the synagogue of your circle of friends and family? 
in the synagogue of your workplace or school, maybe the synagogue of your neighborhood or community, whether you get kicked out of these synagogues or not, to live as faithful and public disciples, claiming Christ as yours, will be costly. It will cost comfort. And so faithful, public, Christ-claiming Christianity to one degree or another will cost you your comfort. It will also cost you your treasure. Verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Have you ever been around one of those people that wear too much cologne? Or, or too much mouthwash or too much perfume. I'm always kind of suspicious of what they're trying to hide. If they're a smoker and drinker and they just don't want Pastor Dan to know. But in this passage, Nicodemus brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes, 75 pounds worth. I mean, this is probably half the weight of Jesus himself. One commentator tells us that the purpose of this mixture was to, quote, stifle the smell of putrefaction. They didn't have the luxury of refrigeration like the morgues did today. And so the body would start to rot and decompose and would smell very badly. I mean, if you remember back when Lazarus died and Jesus says, roll away the stone. And and Martha says to Jesus in the King James Version, because I like this one. He says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. (laughs) And so Nicodemus at great cost to himself brings 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to give to his Savior. But Nicodemus isn't the only one who gives up his treasure for Jesus. Also, Joseph of Arimathea, verse 41, says, Now in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, the Gospel of Matthew gives us more detail about this tomb and tells us that indeed it was the actual tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and that it was a brand new tomb that had never been used before. You see, these tombs would be purchased for families. And what would happen is when a family member would die, they would put that family member in the tomb on a shelf that was carved out of the rock. And after their body decomposed, they would have what they called a second burial where they would place the bones into a, into a box in the tomb called an ossuary. Now we are told in Joseph's case, the tomb had a round stone, which is actually fairly significant for a lot of reasons. But one reason is because during that time period, as, as archaeologists have discovered tombs from around that time, not many of them had round stones that covered the tomb. This was, this was a luxury for the wealthy. Anyways, the point is that Joseph gave to Jesus something that was very personal, very precious, and very costly. Now you may think, okay, this is the part where Pastor Dan starts talking about tithing, right? Giving 10% of your money to the church, which is, which is commanded in the Old Testament and New Testament. But, but this goes far beyond tithing, I guarantee you Nicodemus and Joseph were were faithful tithers to the temple. This is far beyond that. They're giving of of their grave. They're giving of their money to buy this incense. 
They give generously and sacrificially out of love and devotion to their Savior. And unbeknownst to them, in doing this, they're fulfilling the prophecies of God, the plan of God. Isaiah 53 says that the Christ, the suffering servant, will be buried in the tomb of a rich man. And this is the fulfillment of the prophecy when Joseph puts Jesus in his own tomb. You see, the Bible tells us a lot about money. It tells us that, that, that our money, the money that is in our bank account, actually doesn't belong to us. That our money actually belongs to God, and we are called to steward the money that God has entrusted to us for God's glory. The Bible also tells us that we not only invest our money in things that we love, which is certainly true, but also that we will actually love the things that we invest our money in. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, wherever you put your treasure, where your treasure is, he says, there your heart will be also. And so if you invest in Apple stock, your heart's going to be for Apple stock. You know, this example of Joseph and Nicodemus reminds us that following Jesus does not demand some of our treasure. It demands all of our treasure. This, this reminder of treasure is painfully timely for me. Um, God may find it funny. I don't personally, but um, he works that way. On, on Thursday, my wife and I finally finished up our taxes, and we use TurboTaxes to do it. And TurboTax is actually kind of fun. It's kind of like going to the casino a little bit, I'm imagining. I mean, it's like up at the top, you have the federal refund and the state refund, right? And you fill out a page, and whenever you hit next page, it like, right? And you're like, big money, big money, big money. And then you get to the next time, you see what's up there, and you're like, yes, or oh, man. So, so Trish and I were going through our taxes, filling it out together, and you hit next step, and you look up, and you, the, the numbers roll, and it was going pretty well. Like, we had a pretty good refund cutting, more than, than we thought would come our way. And so, but I said, all right, Trish, be cautious, because in years past, we've had a good refund, and then we get to the end, and it's like, you owe, you know, $2,000 or whatever. So I'm like, let's just be cautious. Let's wait to the very end before we celebrate anything. Well, we get to the end, and we find out our refund, and it is more than what we were expecting. I mean, like $80,000. I'm just kidding. It wasn't that much money. <laughs> But, but, but like it's much more than we had actually anticipated. And so I turned to my wife and the very first thing I said is, well, now maybe we can buy that Suburban. You know what didn't go through my head? Jesus, how do you want me to spend this money? Lord, how can I use this return to return glory to you? How can we use our riches to share the riches of Christ with the world around us? Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you can't take some of your money and spend it on good things and enjoy it for the glory of God. But do you have your money and put it before God and say, Lord, what would you have us do with this money? Evidently, this is a pattern in my life. Uh, several years ago, before we had a Awana here, my kids were in Pioneer Club at New Hope Church. And it was a Wednesday night thing again, and they were teaching on tithing. And in front of all of the kids, one of my, one of my children raised their hand and said, we don't do that at our church. And I'm like, yes, we do do that at our church. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a house to live in. You may or might, may not know this, but we are the richest nation in the history of the world. We have more excess in income than anyone has ever imagined. 
And the money is given to us, not for us to clench with closed fists, but to steward as a gift from God that belongs to God for God's glory. And so faithful, public, Christ-claiming Christianity will cost us comfort. It will cost us treasure. But finally, it will cost us glory. And this might be the hardest one of all. You may remember back in John 12 passage, which I think we have up there again. It says, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. We talked a lot about that. But verse 43, it says, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There is a glory that comes from man. When you're in a position of power, a position of prestige, or if you're simply good at something. There is a glory that comes from man that our hearts crave, but always leave us empty. And what we see in this passage is Joseph and Nicodemus trading for the first time the glory that comes from man for the glory that comes from God. Look at verse 40, and this may not seem big at first, but we'll dive in. It says, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with spice and the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, what's interesting is they're kind of doing a, a, a shortened embalming process because the Sabbath is coming and they need to get done with it. Uh, the women will return, if you remember, uh, on Sunday morning to finish the embalming process of the body of Jesus. But when we look at this passage and we see that, that Joseph and that, uh, that Nicodemus do this embalming process, it may not hit us in our cultural lens of how big of a deal this is. You see, the embalming process was not something that men did in that culture. It was a lowly job that was often done by women and by servants. And yet here you have these men who serve on the Jewish council who know Numbers 19.11 that says, whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean for seven days. They know all of these things. And yet they come down for their, from their position of power and prestige and glory to step down and be a servant to Jesus Christ. They knew that they would be found out. They knew people would say, oh, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, did you hear what they did? They claimed the body of Jesus. They touched the dead body of Jesus, making them unclean. They must be disciples of Jesus. I've even heard Jesus was buried in his grave. Now why? Why did Joseph and Arimathea, of Arimathea and Nicodemus, why did they do this? Why did they finally publicly proclaim their allegiance to Jesus. I mean, of all times, this seems like the worst time, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus is dead, right? It seems a bit late in the game. And I don't think they knew that Jesus was going to raise from the dead because if they did, do you think they would have wrapped him and put all of the myrrh around him? Why? Why now, when Jesus is dead, do they decide to trade the glory of men to serve their Savior. Well, I think the reason is because for the very first time, they realized the degree of glory that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, traded to bring the glory of God to humanity. Let me say that again. They started to understand the degree of glory that Jesus, who is God, traded to bring the glory of God 
back to man. They must have realized, like that Roman soldier, surely this is the son of God. And, sh- and sure enough, Jesus is the son of God. He's the eternally begotten son of God, who before the creation of the world, lived in all splendor and majesty and glory in heaven, but set aside his glory to come down and be a man. And not only a man, but a humiliated man. Consider the state of the body of Jesus laying before Nicodemus and Lazarus. Consider that. Sorry, Nicodemus and Joseph. Consider the body that was there. Just earlier that day, Jesus had been scourged, which would have ripped the flesh off his back and torn through his muscles and left some of his bowels hanging out. Jesus then had a crown of thorns hammered into his head so blood would have been streaming down his face. Jesus would have then carried the cross up the hill to the Garden of Gethsemane, falling on multiple occasions because he was so badly beaten. And so he would have gotten to the cross bloodied, dirty, smelly. And then they put him on the cross and they pierced his hands and his feet, probably the two parts of his body that had not yet been harmed. And once he dies, they then stick a spear up through his ribcage into his heart and blood and water come flowing out. And so here you have this man, Jesus, who was not only the God majestic from all eternity becoming a man, but now looked like roadkill. And as they sat there before Jesus and considered the glory that he traded for them, the glory of heaven to become a man, but not only a man, but but a beaten mess of a semblance of a man. They're so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus for them that they can no longer contain the secret. They surrender their pride of position and prominence and glory to be disciples of Jesus by stooping down to serve Jesus. These men became unclean by touching Jesus because in some way, somehow they understood that Jesus became unclean and that the cross took on their uncleanliness and died for their sins so that they could be clean and once again enjoy the glory of God that all of us are created to experience. In the 1800s, Hawaii had a small island set aside for a leper colony. And they, set a, they, they sent all their diseased people there to the island to live out their days and to die. They originally started by sending a lot of supplies like food and water to help them. But out of sight, out of mind, those, those rations started to disappear. In 1872, there was a man named Father Damien. And he asked the bishop if he could go to the island to minister to the people. But his request was denied because to go and minister to the island was certain death. Finally, a year later, it was granted to him to go to that island. And although he was told to stay away from the lepers and not touch them or be too close to them, lest he contract the leprosy, Damien was so overwhelmed by the love of God in Christ that he could do no other. And he would hug them. And he would come close to them. And he would actually take communion and put it on their tongue. Well, about 10 years after his arrival, Father Damien was soaking his feet in a bucket of hot water when he realized that he couldn't feel any heat. Immediately, he knew that he had contracted the leprosy. 
And they, they had offered to bring him off of the island to get modern medicine, but he was devoted to stay there. And he stayed and continued to minister to the people for another five years until the age of 49. And he was quoted as saying, I make myself a leper with the lepers to gain all to Jesus Christ. What would motivate a person to do that? What would motivate a person to leave a comfortable, wealthy, glorious lifestyle to go into a colony of lepers, to take on their leprosy and to die because of it? It's only someone who has understood that his Savior set aside his glory and took on our leprosy, the leprosy of our soul, took on our sin, our decay, and paid for it in full upon the cross so that we could live with him for all eternity. To come to Christ, we have to lay down our glory. We have to come humbly before God, confessing our sin and our unworthiness to be his disciple. And we must look to the righteousness of Christ who set aside his glory to restore us into a glorious relationship with God. Let me end with this. You may be here asking with the wind chimes. <laughs> you may be here asking if Christianity, if faithfully following Jesus is going to cost me my comfort and my treasure and my worldly glory, why would I possibly follow Jesus? Well, first off, just to be clear, Jesus is not just asking for you to give your comfort and your treasure and your worldly glory. Jesus is costing, calling you to give everything. That's just a starting list. Jesus wants your marriage. Jesus wants your recreation. Jesus wants your, your work. Jesus wants everything from you. He wants everything you own to belong to him. And so, and so why, why would we, if, if Jesus gives us, if Jesus, if Jesus asks everything of us, why would we follow Jesus? And the simple answer is because Jesus is greater than everything else in the world combined. The apostle Paul, who had many great things, puts it this way. He says, but whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, everything in the world that he had, prominence, privilege, money, power, put that on one side of the scale. He says, but whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know, I was talking to a friend recently who had been persecuted by their own family for decades because of their faith in Christ. And it weighed very heavily on them and it tormented them in many ways. And they were telling me the story of, of all the abuse that they went through because of their faith in Christ. And then they looked at me and they said, but I tell you what, I would not trade all that abuse for one blessing that comes from Christ. Because Christ is so much better than anything else in the world. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The gospel makes it very clear that to become a Christian costs you absolutely nothing. But to faithfully follow Jesus Christ costs you everything. But it is completely worth it because he is the greatest treasure that surpasses all other things in this world. Let's pray. Lord God, we come again today confessing that we have treasured things above you because we are nearsighted people, because we forget what a great treasure you are. Lord, pray that you would help us to surrender everything to you, Lord. If there are certain areas of our life or spheres of our life that we're quarantined from your lordship, God, pray that today we would surrender it to you, Lord, that your lordship may reign and that we may experience more and more, more the joy of knowing Christ and being united to Christ. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are reminded of the cost of discipleship, that Jesus, who was faithful to you to the very end, cost him his life. May we be ready, Lord, to lay even our lives down for you because you are worthy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.